Hello and welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast, you juvenile hula hands. It is the first day of April. And I gotta say, yesterday, I really, really enjoyed yesterday because the clocks went back at the weekend. So the evening was longer and it properly felt like spring. There was warmth in the sun, genuine warmth in the sun, t-shirt warmth. And there was the promise of that smell of new growth. It's 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 probably my favourite smell of the year. Now it hasn't kicked in yet. It tends to kick in end of April. The, the general smell in the air when every single plant is just putting out those growth hormones and are sprouting new leaves. It's 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 a floral smell, but it's not flowers. It's like flowers cousin. So I got a little bang of that. And I had it the warmth of the sun and the length of the evening. And it was like a fucking tonic. It, it really gave me a lovely sense of optimism and an appreciation for the present moment. And I'm just so fucking grateful. I'm really grateful for, for nature to just give me a little hug and a pat on the back. Because I needed it. Because winter, winter's tough going sometimes. There's beauty in winter. There is beauty in winter. But sometimes it's tough going. And I needed something. And this, the sun gave me a loving headbutt. So for this week's podcast, I have a chat. I'm going to give you a little chat that I did very recently. With someone who was previously a guest on this podcast. Emma Dabbery. Who, she's an academic and an author. And I had her on the podcast back in 2018 or 2019 to speak about the... She, so I had her on the podcast about two years ago. And she'd just written a book called Don't Touch My Hair. Which was like a history and discourse on African hair. Because Emma is... She teaches African studies. That's her area of expertise. And since that time, like... The book became massive. It was released in America under the name of Twisted. And Emma's become huge. Emma's become really, really well known. We worked together on my BBC series, Blind Boy Undestroys, in particular on the episode about modern slavery. And Emma has a brand new book, which is actually out today, which is fantastic, because I got an early read of it. And the book is called What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition. Now, when I announced the title of this book on my Instagram, when I said I was going to be chatting to Emma, I got quite a few annoyed direct messages from people who were kind of pissed off at the title of the book. Going, what do you mean? What is this? stuff? Some type of instruction manual for white people. Why are you promoting this? And as Emma explains in the chat that we're going to have, like the title of the book is, it's deliberately provocative. It's a deliberately provocative title. The book itself is fucking fantastic. It's... A wonderfully concise deconstruction of race, of race and racism. It's also an anti-colonial book, it's an anti-capitalist book. You'll know that a frequent theme on this podcast is I like to look at Irish history from a decolonial perspective because I'm fascinated with Irish history. And why do I do this? Man, it's because it, it, it's helpful to me and I'd like to think it's helpful to other people that if we can understand our history in Ireland 
from a decolonial perspective that this allows us to have a sense of empathy solidarity and coalition with anyone who is suffering under similar power structures today so that we can actually help to fight it rather than perpetuate it and a central tenet of the book is emma is challenging the the, the inherent power dynamics in the concept of allyship arguing instead for coalition when it comes to how people can confront the structures of racism i was actually taken aback when i was reading the foreword of the book where emma describes why she wrote this book because she references the her appearance on my podcast which we we did in vicar street like two years ago she said recently i recall having a public discussion in which we touched on afrofuturism philosophy ancestral veneration and its relationship to african concepts of time as well as the trajectory between the blues and trap music i enjoyed it immensely and found the interviewers questions refreshing but apparently not everyone felt the same way at the end of the event i was approached by a woman who worked in development somewhere in africa and she said she enjoyed the conversation but felt it was a wasted opportunity she wanted us to discuss allyship my heart sank so the book it's 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 anti-capitalism it explains what racism is and it's like a roadmap to racial justice where it's transforming demonstrations of support into real and meaningful change and i do strongly recommend you go and get it because it's a fantastic book and emma is a brilliant writer and she's an expert in her field she's an expert in her field and not only when you read emma's book it's the type of book that you then want to read 10 other books from the people she quotes in it if you get me before i get into the chat i want to get the ocarina pause out of the way early so that i'm not interrupting our conversation so here's the ocarina 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labeling my emotions identifying my emotions I often seek the help of a professional therapist 
to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. That was the ocarina pause. You might have heard an advert there. Um, Support from this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This is an independent podcast. It's my full time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. And the Patreon allows me to do this as my job so I can put it out every week and put maximum amount of time into making sure that I'm putting out the best podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to it a lot and you're enjoying it, please consider becoming a patron. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. All right. Pay me for the work I'm doing, essentially, if you're if you're consuming it. If you can't afford that. All right. If you can't afford it, don't worry. You can listen for free. But if you can afford it, then you're paying for the person who can't afford it. So everyone gets a podcast. I earn a living. And it's a lovely model that's based on kindness and soundness. All right. Also, the the Patreon allows me to... No advertiser tells me what to speak about on this podcast. No one decides what the content is. I decide what the content is. Which is... It's a lovely position to be in when it comes to making what I want to make. So, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. And thank you to all my patrons. Um, also, catch me on Twitch Thursday nights, 8.30, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. You can catch me with my never-ending video game musical that I'm making on Twitch and you can chat with me as well like the podcast, share the podcast leave a review, you know the crack so the book is called What White People Can Do Next, it's out today it's written by Emma Dabbery and here's the conversation we had and then I'm gonna I wanna take it just by chapter by chapter if I can, yeah. alright, regarding the book so the book is called What White People Can Do Next and like what? why did you why did you write this book, what's the why did you write this book? A combination of things, um, but probably primarily like frustration mm-hmm. and a fear, not fear, but frustration and a concern that we're being presented with a historic opportunity for change that we're squandering. Mm-hmm because the right questions aren't being asked and the right frameworks frameworks aren't being used. Did you feel kind of reluctant to write a book like this? Because your last book, you're, you're an academic in African history and you're an academic in art. And like, you d- weren't necessarily speaking about race. You were just speaking about, or writing about the history of Africa and African cultures and African hair. And now, is it fair to say this is a political book? Um, 
Yeah, I think I think that would be a fair I think that would be a fair assessment. I mean, like my yeah, absolutely. I um more what I teach is um, you know, history and mm-hmm. kind of cultural production across various different mediums. Um my PhD is actually in sociology and I look at the construction of racial categories, but with my kind of output in terms of like pu- public facing work um i've been far less interested in conversations about racism per se mm-hmm. and i've been far more inspired by you know african knowledge systems and uh black co- black cultures and their diversity um d- different forms of cultural production but i do have um like a, a, a strong uh, I have like kind of years of scholarship looking at how racial categories um how and why they came into being what the effects of that and what the effects of that are and in this current um in this current climate I felt compelled to actually speak more directly about racism mm-hmm. um because it just seemed to me like a lot of the discourse seemed untethered from theory around race which could really which could really help um i think form the direction that 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 we go in like a lot of it just feels untethered from a lot of the current discourse on anti-racism seems untethered from theory and mm-hmm. ahistoric and mm-hmm. in many ways i see a lot of inaccuracies and i see a lot of um reinvestment actually in the in the categories of race that we should understand yeah. as really fictitious and that we should be trying our best to kind of um dissolve rather than reinvest in could you give us a little history of the construct of racism because I've seen you speak about it before online and you place it at the foot of the British Empire of British colonialism yeah Could you give us a, a little just a, a speak about that yeah absolutely so the racial categories black and white that we mm-hmm. um, understand ourselves and each other through today are a colonial construct they're an english innovation mm-hmm. um i have to point out that that it's it's the english in the colonial caribbean and the um what will become the united states rather than the english in england um and the invention of the white race and the quote unquote negro race as it's uh, referred to at the time is a reaction is a response to this environment um is is a response to what's happening in Barbados so it, the english have english people have gone to Barbados um they have stolen the land <laughs> from the indigenous people they have started these kind of huge um plantations and farms and brought over initially actually lots of indentured irish and lots of people who have been taken there from ireland from uh cromwell's activities in yeah. ireland at the time and these are irish people who are they're not slaves they're not enslaved but they are indentured laborers who were there in pretty grueling and shitty circumstances 
quite rapidly the English landlords and some Scottish landlords as well um, the two main the two main groups there realize they need like a lot more labor and they start bringing in like loads of africans from from west africa it's a it's a history that i feel like uniquely kind of connected to being both irish and nigerian yeah. i'm like mm -hmm. wow I'm, I'm on both sides um yes. both sides of my heritage are the two groups of people that were that were used or that race was invented because of the way they were being used. So basically what you have is Irish indentured laborers and enslaved Africans. And I, I specifically don't say like white and black because that hasn't, that concept isn't, mm -hmm. hasn't been popularized yet, but you have indentured Irish and enslaved Africans working on these plantations. And then you have them like basically coming together and there's a series of uprisings in Barbados where they um, come together and attack their landlords. And this is deeply threatening to the power system because there's more of them than there is of this like small, small elite. And it's as a reaction to those uprisings that you see the first introduction of the idea wow. of white people and black people as uh, racialized categories and you see it codified into law in a in a the, in these slave codes that bring in like really draconian laws against how black people will be treated and handled there's two things going on um one of these is one of the motivations behind this uh new concept of white people and black mm -hmm. people is to justify the enslavement of africans that um you know, these economies, these individuals, and ultimately these economies and the Western world will become incredibly dependent on because this system of capitalist um, slave exploit, exploit, slave exploited labor, um, chattel slave labor is, is, is generating a hell of a lot of money. So in order to justify the exploitation of Africans, this notion of race is, is 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 introduced saying you know these people aren't fully human and it's when we start to see the um introduction of or the association of blackness with lots of negative characteristics and this concept of inferiority and by the same token we see whiteness with this um inherent kind of belief in the superiority so these two groups one is superior and one is inferior according to this new logic so it does that but another thing it does is that the indentured laborers yeah. start to be taught that their interests lie their allegiances are more with people that share the same racial newly racialized identity as them rather than the people who share far more of a class identity with them and the circumstances of whose lives are actually more more similar to so it shuts down these nascent solidarities that are emerging between um indentured european indentured labor and um and African and, and enslaved Africans. Then from Barbados it we see it in Jamaica and then the next time we see excuse me 
the where we see it in what will become North America is in colonial Virginia, where again there is a, an uprising. Um, what it, what was called a union of commoners, where indentured English and enslaved Africans came together and the for a, a rebellion called uh, Bacon's Revolt. And um, again, that was deeply threatening to the power system. And after that, the response was to start to introduce this this this, this concept of, of black and white and to codify it into law. So, so whiteness yeah. was dangled as a little a carrot in front of the indentured servants to say that you should not be joining with these people because this system says that you, you are better. It says you're better. And then it gave them, it gave those indentured servants um it put them in a hierarchy where they were no longer, um, where they were very, very distinct from enslaved African, and they had the kind of power of life and death over the kind of newly minted black yeah. race. You had mm -hmm. a situation whereby, um, like, black people, people of African descent, couldn't give evidence against white people. So even a very materially poor white person could essentially do anything they wanted to a black person and that person would never be able to give evidence against them they also kind of degraded black people to the to, to the extent where in and gave yes relative advantages to to in, to the indentured laborers and they could now they could also see their rights enshrined in contract law whereas black people became this category where there were no rights so that's one of the big differences there, there's no there's no rights you have no human rights you have no you have no recourse to justice you are just an object Whereas the indentured laborers, while not while having kind of poor material conditions in contrast to the rich, had the opportunity to join that class yeah. at some point if they could kind of acquire enough wealth. And you do see instances of people of of, of, of white people who start off, um, you know, poor and kind of are able to able to become quite wealthy in this new uh, in, yes. in this new context. Because uh, th that's something, like, you know we have that phrase in Ireland, taking the soup. I don't uh, know it. You've never heard of taking the soup? No. Or if I have, so I've forgotten. Taking the soup is, uh, it's a bit of a silly, a silly enough term, but it's what we say when, so apparently during the Irish famine, when Irish Catholics were starving and couldn't have food, Protestant organisations would offer soup to Catholics if they were willing to convert to Protestantism. So it means like a, a traitor to your people. But what I prefer to say is that the Irish diaspora, wherever the Irish went around the world, whether it be the Caribbean or up as far as it, New York, we essentially took the soup by committing acts of violence towards Africans or African-Americans so that we could climb the ladder of whiteness. Yeah, or that's anywhere like such, that. That's such a great analogy, actually. Yeah, that that makes a lot of well, sense. Well, I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear Irish people speak about it more because when I speak about race on my podcast and I'm addressing um, a white Irish audience, I always try and bring it back to colonialism. I mm -hmm. always try and say, we were colonized. We, we don't have an excuse. We're able to, and it, it didn't happen to me, but we're able to look at our own history and see things like the penal laws, things like the famine, and go, 
well, places like Nigeria were colonised too. Why can't we look at our own history and then have a, a common ground or a shared empathy with people from those countries rather than identifying with the system of oppression? Yeah, so I would say it's whiteness that does that. That's the thing that... Mm -hmm. So the the history of colonisation between the Irish and, you know, Africa, Asia, the Americas, there are so many, like, there are so many parallels, but the one thing that is distinctly different is the Irish come to be racialised as white in a way that none of those other groups do. The process in the United States is, um, is, 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 is slightly different in terms of when the Irish come, when the, you know, kind of millions of Irish come in the 18, from the 1840s, like fleeing the, mm-hmm. uh, fleeing the, the famine. Um, they're not immediately, as I'm sure I've heard you talking about before, um, they're not immediately identified as, as, as as white you know but they distinguish themselves um from the kind of they distinguish themselves often through quite an investment in white in white supremacy you know and to really clearly delineate themselves from black americans who you might think there would be a natural sympathy uh towards or a sense of kind of uh, parallel uh, struggle in what the Irish have experienced as a result of British colonialism and as, as a result of what the black people have experienced as a result of enslavement. And um, something I write about in the book as well, which I find so interesting, is you know when Daniel O'Connell was going to America and trying to yeah. drum up support um, for the because he was um, you know like a I guess the kind of he could see those type of coalitions that I'm talking mm-hmm. about in 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 the book that are so important and the kind of shared struggle that exists between so many oppressed people. And so while he was like, you know, kind of a great Irish freedom fighter, he was also like a committed uh, slavery abolitionist. Yeah. And when he went to the United States to when he went to America to try and drum up support for abolition amongst Irish Americans, he was kind of met with contempt actually and this was these were irish americans who saw the who saw uh emancipation for black people as a direct threat to um to labor you know they were like well these people will be in competition with us for jobs it's better that they're that they're enslaved so there was actually like a very pro-slavery irish lobby and then the other thing that was going on was at this time in the states Immigrants were being looked at, um, you know, with suspicion. And there was this idea that they were bringing the politics from their from their own countries into America, that they had anti-American values. So for the Irish Americans, rather than align themselves with a cause that might be seen as um, the result of their um, anger towards kind of colonialism and the English, they were like, no, we'll distance ourselves from, from from that and kind of invest in this American institution of 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 slavery. So where there should have been solidarity, there was quite quite the opposite. And you can see too there as well this they kind of stop identifying as Irish because in the 1700s in New York, the first ever street gang in New York were called the Carrionians, mm-hmm. and they were 
exclusively made up of people from Kerry in New York and all they wanted to do was rob English people and that was it <laughs> which means that even even then they still considered themselves Irish mm -hmm. but then something happens where they start to identify as American white or Irish American mm -hmm. and that's when you see all that shit happen like the New York draft riots of the 1860s where the Irish population of New York committed unbelievable acts of violence towards their African-American neighbours. Um, there's a lovely quote in your book about capitalism where you say capitalism, like whiteness, is a pervasive organism. It infiltrates the innermost aspects of human experience and transforms our understanding of the world, our relationships with ourselves and with others. You have a nice old lash off capitalism in the book, which is fantastic. <laughs> do, you, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yes. So one of my frustrations with the current anti-racist movement is the kind of absence of discussion or analysis of both class and capitalism, in, which have been replaced instead with this kind of almost fetishization of interpersonal privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with racism or capitalism? Like, just kind of give mm -hmm. us, a, we're just focusing on one. And that is exactly the kind of atomized approach to issues that leads us to not connecting the dots that need to be connected and creates inadequate responses to the to the oppressions that we desire, that we, we claim to desire to, uh, to, to want to overcome. In this period where we see the, um, the kind of invention of the white, the white race and the black race, uh, it's no coincidence that this is happening part of, as I was explaining, part of, um, part of that origin story is to justify the exploitation of labor for this new system of capitalism, you know, that is um, that the um, kind of plantation economies are are completely dependent on. So capitalism is, you know, like a, a, system, a system of production in which inequality, inequality you know, ne needs to exist within it, like capitalism requires inequality to exist. So talking about kind of like achieving equality within a system that requires inequality to exist just seems kind of like, like wasted energy uh, to me. So I think that needs that needs to be identified. But also, when I say it's colonized, like, oh, I can't remember what it is that I say, but it's, it's colon colonized our uh, you said capitalism like whiteness is a pervasive organism that infiltrates our, the innermost aspects of human experience. Yeah. So it's not only that um, it's not only that the capitalism and race and by extension racism and, and race is invented to create racism. Mm -hmm. um, so that's I think that's really key to remember. Um, race and capitalism, you know, are siblings and we see their kind of genesis and origin at the same historical period with the same kind of intention and, and, and purpose. So there's that. But then there's also the fact that now the form of neoliberalism, which is, you know, like a permutation of, mm -hmm. of capitalism that we've been bequeathed um, from the kind of late 1970s, um, is one that you know has completely transformed our ideas around collectivism 
and as a um, as an ideology it's one that is like it's, it's one that is completely reliant on individualism and we mm-hmm. we it, it fosters a sense of competition between people whereby in order to survive thrive like I'm not, I can't say thrive in order to survive and be successful under the terms of that system we have to have this like inherent uh, competition mm-hmm. and and sense of individualism and I can see that individualism at the expense of a collectivism as really animating this current form of activism so mm-hmm. even the the the, the the form of activism that is um is is kind of predominant in this moment is one that is deeply neoliberal and deeply individualist so even our responses to these forms of oppression actually kind of reproduce the norms of of that oppression so i'm just like oh man we're fucked and you know another thing emma right and do you ever get suspicious i don't know what suspicious the word but one thing that makes me feel uneasy is so much discourse happens in particular on a place like Twitter. And <laughs> you're not a fan of Twitter, neither am I. I. I can see your head is fucking melted on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and But what makes me upset is a, for some reason Twitter has become a place where very, very important conversations are happening. Not just about race, but about many things. Very important conversations are happening consistently. But Twitter, I view it it's a video game where people are given points for kind of having the best complaint or for having the most, the, the response that elicits the strongest emotions and mm-hmm. reactions. Mm-hmm. So now, and Twitter's also one of the richest companies in the world, mm-hmm. and the resources that it extracts are the data, and data is just a word for our behavior. So now this giant corporation has decided here is a playground where everyone can have their discussions but we set the rules and the rules are you must have these discussions in a limited amount of words mm-hmm. that lack nuance mm-hmm. and the, the, the fucking uh, comments that get rewarded are the ones not that make the most sense or that elicit compassion but the ones that make people most angry or most afraid and that to me the more and more I look at Twitter the more I go something's not right I don't think social media is the correct forum for a lot of these discussions that we're having because all it seems to do is make people really angry and when we get really angry companies like twitter make huge amounts of money i mean you've just hit the nail on the head like i i i I completely agree and the 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 nature of the platform um is to gamify division and to reward outrage um, and to re- reward um, re- reducta- mm-hmm. the reduction of complexity um, and you and know to reward performatism yeah absolutely absolutely and I think it's like really fucking sinister High arousal emotions is what they actually call it in Twitter at the highest levels they're Maybe. looking for yeah so they have designed this to reward high arousal emotions. So high arousal emotions tend to be around where one group feels subjugated and another group disagrees. Well, that's that's that landscape. You know, that's exactly mm-hmm. what it is. And so I, you see people with the the shallowest and most divisive 
shallow politics and divisive tendencies really um, accumulating likes, retweets, Mm -hmm. followers, and therefore power and influence. (laughs) Clout. Clout, exactly, and clout rage is 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 the thing um where there are people who have you know far more considered complex not even complex you know because i i actually just just considered and nuanced explanations of things um but that gets lost that gets lost in the fray you know and Mm -hmm. drowned drowned out by those reductive reactive forms of outrage and the fact that kind of um you know conversations about um race and racism that this is one of the major arenas where people are getting educated Mm -hmm. and having these conversations is a fucking disaster actually Mm -hmm. you know like i think there's a lot of utility in social media in terms of if we saw it as a starting point you know like i've learned so much yeah emma but like before twitter my understanding of racism was basically uh, don't hate people who are a different color and that was it and I, <laughs> I knew nothing about microaggressions i knew nothing about systemic racism a, a lot of things i learned first by microaggressions on huh? i'm a bit fatigued by microaggressions yeah what's your opinion on microaggressions okay so while they exist and while there's something that i have come uh, up against you know like pretty consistently although i would not have called them microaggressions yeah. um they are symptomatic of far more pervasive uh forces but because they are could you describe a microaggression for someone who doesn't know what it is yeah so a microaggression might be um i mean it's a range of things it's so it might be like an in i don't know like it, it has different there's a range of things so it might be like an insensitive use of language but it yeah. might also be like an intentionally offensive use of language you know yeah. there's actually like kind of a, a range of what it can be i guess something like in terms of i've written a lot about um well i wrote a book about hair and the kind of politics mm-hmm. of of afro hair and the kind of in entitlement that a lot of white strangers feel towards uh, touching black people in unsolicited fashions and mm-hmm. particularly our hair and you know that's one of the things that would be classed as a microaggression um so there's, there's 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 a range of things but i i just find the emphasis on those interpersonal so they're part of an ecosystem of of racism but i feel that the um the more superficial manifestations of these systems take up all the bandwidth so we kind of get caught we kind of get caught in a bit of a tit for tat back and and no one chats about structure exactly people say structure but then they don't talk about it then they talk about the interpersonal and structure is sidelined why we don't talk about class or capitalism because another lovely quote here emma that you have is is and this one really stuck out to me when you were talking about performativism and you said long gone it seems are the organized strikes of the black liberation movement of the 60s as Lipsitz notes there's little evidence of the parallel institutions that were built then the freedom schools the community banks the community land trust the breakfast clubs mm-hmm. what are you speaking about there when you when you speak about that and you're using it as opposed to 
we'll say online performative um you say we seem to have replaced doing anything with saying something and then you go on to speak about these structural things that happened in the 60s mm-hmm. what are you getting at there so where people are trying to organize to create a material and concrete change in people's circumstances as opposed to now where the there's not even a consistent set of demands like I don't really know what people are asking for in the current moment beyond a trans beyond like kind of asking those who are deemed with having privilege to transfer their privilege in some way now if that was presented as a redistribution of resources and the various ways mm-hmm. one could go about that that would make some sort of sense to me but nothing is so clear or concrete seems to be suggested it seems to be more of a linguistic or, or, or verbal ge- game of um i don't know kind of like ch- chastising people about privilege and saying they need to transfer the benefits of their privilege, but then with no kind of meaningful way of that happening beyond what are some of the things I see calling out, you know, companies not for the capitalist exploitation that they, that they yeah. you know, participate in, but because they haven't cast enough diverse models or because they don't have the right range of color foundations or, you know, because boycotting a hairdresser because they don't do all textures of hair. Um, it all just seems kind of interpersonal, again, you know, rather than what we see with the organizing of the 60s and 70s, where people, there's land trusts, there are schools, there are breakfast clubs, there are people like actually organizing in the communities that, they're, that, they, that they are talking about and that they represent, rather than kind of posturing online. Because that's the thing, and we, we spoke about this on, on my BBC series. Um, you know, the, the the shitty thing about existing, try, trying to live today and trying to live good, but understanding that everything that I enjoy in my life, whether it's the clothes that I wear or the food that I eat, has been, is as a result of the exploitation of people in the global south, but I've been completely sheltered from it. I'm not aware of it. I mm-hmm. have to go and search for these things. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying there about calling out these multinational corporations that make billions because they don't have the right amount of representation and then it's like but what about what they're actually doing in order to create these products how about looking at that the structure of that exactly you know i was seeing uh kind of in the immediate aftermath of um the of of the the killing of of George Floyd and the Black Mm -hmm. Lives Matter protests, I was seeing some people online using that as an opportunity to um, call out, um, you know, these fast fashion brands who use sweatshop Mm -hmm. labor of, you know, women in from from minoritized groups and and in the uk and in and in the global south but mm-hmm. rather than take exception with that they just wanted the organize they just wanted the fast fashion labels to put out a statement saying they support black lives matter and i mean that 
that do you, I just feel actually feel speechless. You know. Do, but do, do you think? Do you ever feel that? Um, because when I see that too, like I, I don't know what the fuck to do. Because like, I have an I've look. You know, I use an iPhone. Like I, I'm, I'm as I say, I remind myself. Like I'm, I'm dripping in blood. Even in in that BBC show, the, the premise of it was to find out how many slaves do people own, and the answer is is that people in the West today. We benefit from about seventy slaves each, just to just to eat, just to yeah, to fucking to, yeah. to, to wear our clothes, yeah, yeah. and we are sheltered from this. Now, I I don't I think most people are aware of this. We all, I I've been hearing about sweatshops since I was seven. Mm-hmm. We we all kind of know, but we use a cognitive dissonance. Do you ever feel that people go for this performative thing because it's the only way to feel some type of control? Like, like saying to yourself, do you know when you're trying to uh, get off cigarettes, so you go, you buy 20, you smoke one and throw the packet into a hedge? <laughs> I know, trying to give up cigarettes and buying a packet and smoking 20 to try and like but, make but myself sick. Bargaining with yourself, making these, or, or no, no, the classic, giving up cigarettes and I didn't buy any, but when I'm in the pub, I take other people's okay, cigarettes, yeah, yeah, but that's yeah, not yeah. really smoking. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Cognitive dissonance. Um, yeah, so I think that's partially it. People feel like, you know, it, it kind of feels overwhelming. It feels like, it just feels overwhelming, like it's too much hard work. But I also think, or it's not that it's too much hard work, that it's impossible. But I also feel it is partially neoliberal identity politics that are obsessed with kind of representation rather than you know structural change and again Mm -hmm. something that's different between now and although I'm seeing resistance to this I'm seeing like growing numbers of for instance something I've seen on on Twitter is like a lot of growing numbers of young black Marxists you know who Mm -hmm. are like very theoretically astute and very involved in organizing and I think that's been a really interesting backlash against the more neoliberal identity politics I saw somebody Mm -hmm. refer to it as seat at the table twitter or uh, (laughs) representation twitter you know reactionary kind of like anti-intellectual anti-intellectual historically that has been the the power has considered that to be by far the most dangerous that's the one that the power structures always try and crack down on when movements move towards Marxist thinking that actually deconstruct power. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if, like if, did you ever hear of Flamingo magazine in Britain? Yes, yes. I like, did you see that article. Thing. There was an article in the Guardian about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Flamingo magazine was it was a magazine in Britain that was made for people from the Caribbean in Britain and then it turned out it was funded by MI5 mm-hmm. or I'm... MI6 and then you're like why the fuck are they doing that and it's like the MI6 funded a magazine for black people in Britain so that they could control the narrative so that it didn't become a... it was anti-communist yeah and it's speak about blackness but don't speak about bad about uh, capitalism don't yeah 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 and i think it was pre- it was presented as being like quite creative and mm-hmm. kind of like like you know a creative space rather than one that was seemingly like very conservative mm-hmm. um there's a lot of you know subterfuge yeah so um there's actually a quote um from the book it's a uh, 
I'm quoting Cornell West. Um, the he's great, crack. I love him. He's, he's fantastic. fantastic. Um, sorry, let me just. I should have had it open. Let me just grab it up because I think he speaks really um, powerfully to this. Um, Today, those who peddle divisive rhetoric and shallow politics are frequently named the spokespeople of our times. In the words of black liberation scholar Cornel West, if you do it in a way that is easily co-opted, you will be celebrated while you pose and posture as something that you are not. Um, so when I heard him saying that, I was just like, ooh, Cornell knows mm -hmm. what's up. He's watching mm -hmm. these people. He sees. So if you're just, if you're talking about, I guess there's this, I guess to talk about anti-racism is seen as so provocative that often people don't actually listen to the specificity sometimes of what the voice is saying. Is this somebody that is like kind of looking for collective liberation or is it somebody that's looking for personal individualist, individual enrichment, you know? Is it somebody mm -hmm. who's promoting an idea so that it is, is speaking a lot about these issues so that they can get a seat at the table? Or is it somebody that's speaking about these issues because they want to overturn the table and build something new that replaces the, the deeply um, unequal and destructive um, kind of systems that we that we that that, that that we have now um there's another idea that runs through the book of like fugitivity that mm -hmm. um if i could just do a quick quote from that as well so fugitivity is a concept from um fred fred moton um who is again uh, in the black radical tradition um and he is a i guess a philosopher um so Okay, I'll just read out this little section. As the rich get richer, the rest of us will be left in increasingly precarious situations. In the global recession that is upon us, the powerful will double down on their control of state and cultural apparatus. They will be determined to repress or to co-opt the tremulous expressions of resistance that are gaining volume as the people rise up against death. The issue of co-option is pertinent. Our articulations of dissent too often mirror the parameters of our oppression, reproducing oppressive systems, unwittingly reinforcing them, or attempting to reverse them, or indeed diverse them, to make them more inclusive, when in truth they need to dissolve. Bio Akumalafe describes our current system as a replication of the slave ship, complete with the various levels that existed on board. In actual slave ships, the captured Africans were chained in the bottom in the dark, dank cold, with the European slavers on the top deck, living it up in the fresh air. Yet, although they were on different levels and as such had radically different experiences of the ship, they were all still aboard a vessel of destruction. Akomalafe says that inclusion today can be understood as access to the top deck of the slave ship. Mm -hmm. Inclusion is access to power in a system that is ultimately a tool of destruction. It is not enough to make exploitative systems more inclusive. Do we want to get on the top deck or do we want to destroy the goddamn ship? So, yeah. Which, when you take it back to what you were speaking about regarding Barbados and we said the Irish indentured servants, 
they had whiteness dangled in front of them and they became overseers and eventually became slave owners themselves mm-hmm. to perpetuate that system mm-hmm. rather than uniting with the chattel slaves they worked alongside to overthrow the system for collective liberation. That's such a good parallel to draw to that analogy, yeah. Um, one In, in one chapter in the book, you denounced the, the white saviour and you argued that to replace the white saviour with coalition identifying common ground what do you mean by that um so one of the can i just do another quote because <laughs> it's easier yeah fuck me. it go on yeah <laughs> okay the uh, fred moton who i mentioned a moment ago the theorist poet and philosopher fred moton describes coalition as emerging out of the recognition that it's fucked up for you in the same way that we've already realized that it's fucked up for us And then he goes on to say, I don't need your help. I just need you to recognize that this shit is killing you too, however much more softly, you stupid motherfucker. So basically, that's the thing. Like I like black people don't need like charity or benevolence. Like the whole allyship framework to me is like actually like deeply patronizing. And Yeah, you say you don't like the word ally at the start of the book. I don't like the word ally, no. Mm -hmm. It reinforces a power dynamic. It reinforces a power dynamic, you know, where and I've seen so many times the ally and the victim. I've seen that mm-hmm. written, you know, and mm-hmm. that just goes, that just brings me back to like my childhood and like the choker boxes and the pennies for the black mm-hmm. babies and the missionaries to Africa and the African victim and the black victim and the benevolent white like benefactor and allyship is it, way too close to that to that mm-hmm. fucking power dynamic and also it's like a favor it's like a chat it's like you know it's the charitable ally like i don't need your help i need you to realize that this shit is killing you too however much more softly and i also feel as well with allyship it's it's it's, a, it's a, it has more to do with a white person's expression of guilt mm-hmm. than it has to do with an actual desire to an actual desire to to, to confront power for a mutual good Exactly, exactly. So there's a whole there's a whole chapter in well not a chapter because it's a short book, but there's a whole section on guilt and shame and the relationship between guilt and kind of warped responses to racism, um of which allyship would be would be an example of. So rather than appealing to the charitable nature of, you know, nice white people that might come on board to help and be allies, I would like to for people to identify, you know, the deprivations and inequalities that are per- are perpetuated as a result of capitalism that, you know, most people in the world um are in some way deprived because of of course it plays out to like varying extents and it's not to conflate that with racism white people aren't experiencing aren't experiencing racism you know but that doesn't mean that lots of white people aren't having like a terrible existence because of the deprivations of inequality and, and capitalism and what's so what's to me so inspiring about some of the organizing of the past that I reference in the book I look at you know Fred Hampton who was the um who was the um leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers and mm-hmm. the way in which he was able to create 
something that he called the Rainbow Coalition, which was um, organized between like Latino. So basically it was black Americans, yeah. black Panthers. Um, like poor whites from the South or something. Yeah, wasn't it? Latino yeah. gangs. Um, and then white, poor white, southerners you know yeah. so groups that would be diametrically opposed in fact those the white southerners that he formed a rainbow coalition with the young patriots they were called mm -hmm. they had the confederate flag as like yeah. their symbol the confederate flag is like the symbol of the slave owning south mm -hmm. so these people that would be imagined to be like you know diametrically opposed to each other could actually identify that if they worked together um because so while the young patriots the white working class Southerners are not experiencing racism. They are experiencing police brutality as the Latino and mm -hmm. obviously black groups are, and they are experiencing like entrenched poverty and inequality because of capitalism. So working together, they identify, look, we can build like a mass movement because we have mm -hmm. shared interests rather than allowing themselves to be manipulated um, uh, to see themselves as, you know, enemies along racialized lines. So the Rainbow Coalition actually, like, they worked, these groups worked independently, they worked separately to each other, but in communication with each other and organizing towards a common goal. Um, Fred Hampton uh, was killed by, was, was, was killed by the police about, uh, kind of within a year after he had started doing this work. Of so course, it never... that's really dangerous shit. To, mm -hmm. to the structures of power that's yeah. really dangerous shit so it never it never came to fruition but it's so interesting to me that also malcolm no sorry martin luther king just um in the year before he was assassinated was also working on the poor people's campaign where he was working to bring all the american poor across racial lines together to form a mass movement mm -hmm. advocating for a form of universal basic income um, this is like in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just very interesting to me how a lot of the kind of icons of um, black organizing, civil rights and black power were actually moving towards um, uh, creating uh, coalitions amongst all oppressed people because they knew then, you know, the numbers are far more. I mean, that's it's most of the world, you know. And the, th the thing is, too. Like this is something for Irish people that like we, we have a history of that. Like I, I had on my podcast before Bernadette Devlin uh, Michaliski. Yeah. And she spoke about like Bernadette was brought over in the 70s by the Irish Americans to speak to the Americans about how terrible things were in the north of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And the Irish Americans welcomed her and they put her on television. And mm -hmm. then Bernadette says, hold on a second, Irish Americans. We're being treated at home the way that you're treating people of color and black people here in this country um what the fuck is that about and then she was and she tried to give the she was given the freedom the key of new york city and she tried to give it to the, the black, black panthers. panthers yeah she was fucking <laughs> shut down very quickly and they didn't start ringing bernadette up again you i know? can imagine <laughs> she was ostracized. that was so dangerous and they weren't ready for it they mm -hmm. weren't ready they wanted this uh danny boy remember when we used to be oppressed oh isn't this awful type of thing mm -hmm. but they weren't ready to confront I mean, the history of the Irish in America with the formation of the police. The police mm. in America is a very, very Irish institution. Even um, there over the summer with, with the protests in America, when you saw the American police, the way they were deliberately attacking journalists and they were being deliberately provocative on camera. 
that that's known as the Miami method of policing, and it was invented by a man from Dublin in the 1980s. Oh my God! Yes, I can't <laughs> remember his name, John Timoney, but like he was an Irish American police officer born in Dublin, went to America, and literally formed this way of controlling protests where Jesus. you attack journalists, you you display terrifying power, even though it looks like you should be showing a brave, uh, showing um, a nice side of the police. It's like no, go the opposite go straight up fascism and this is what will work a Dublin man invented that in the fucking 80s wow wow yeah. that's yeah, not that's the, crazy. the proudest uh, not at all not <laughs> innovation and <laughs> um, one thing too that you touch on in the book and it's something you and I have spoken about before for, for white people to acknowledge and take ownership of our racism to to be able to say I grew up in a system that told me I was better why would I not be racist as opposed to running away from it? And as, as because the thing is what I found with media growing up, the way racism has been portrayed in films like American history X and stuff. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not saying uh, racism is bad because it's, it's harmful to black people. They're saying to white people, don't be the wrong type of white person. Yeah. Yeah. As in, uh, Oh, racists. You mean people with shaved heads, who behave in an uncouth fashion. So mm -hmm. what it actually is, is classism. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with uh, coalition or solidarity. It's just, no, no, do, you, you need to do racism differently, which is behind closed doors quietly. Um, but don't do it like with tattoos and a shaved head. What are you, white trash? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, but, but I then learned from that, the worst thing anyone could ever call you is a racist. Mm -hmm. Because that means that you are violent and lower class mm -hmm. and then as soon as anyone says to a white person online racism we get this extreme reaction mm -hmm. of, what racist me yeah a Instead visceral going, reaction i remind myself every day of course i sometimes have blind spots around any group of people who experienced marginalization because i was raised in a society that normalized these things so i have to recognize it take ownership of it and then as a fucking adult who's capable of critical thinking and empathy work on it ah. and the same with race the same with homophobia the same with misogyny i was raised to benefit from these systems so take ownership of it and go now i'm a fucking adult what can i do that like that thank you it's just everybody and like it's, it's everybody you know everybody has internalized these messages because they've been um we they, they've been invented like centuries before like mm -hmm. any of us were born you know so one of the things i'll just do a quick a quick quote from the book is first things first this is the most basic it's at once the easiest and perhaps simultaneously the most difficult because i know you've already started denying it but stop the vehement denial, especially mm -hmm. to yourself, that you have racist beliefs. Race mm -hmm. was invented to create racist beliefs. It goes with the territory. So, like, we have to stop acting like racism is some, like, anomaly, you know, that it's just these extreme or explicit um, kind of, like, moments of abuse. It's just, um, it, it's, it's so present in just the assumptions and stereotypes that you have about, that you have about people. And I, I also say in the book, like, you don't, you don't have responsibility like you don't have to feel guilt for what your ancestors did if 
depending on who your ancestors are, but you don't have to have guilt for what they did. You're not, you're not responsible for what your ancestors did, but you're responsible for what you do next, you know? So Mm -hmm. exactly what you're talking about, you know, that process of it just acknowledging that race isn't some fucking anomaly, that it's actually like, sorry, racism isn't like some, isn't an anomaly. It's just, um, these like these notions and assumptions and stereotypes about um groups of people are kind of what our cultures have been built on so acknowledge that and then start to kind of unpack that you know and 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 grapple with it but it's like you can't grapple with it if you're denying if you're denying that it exists and that's why i think the mainstreaming of this um information about why and when race was invented would just normalize this idea we have that that's one of the things about kind of anti-racism it seems like a lot of the anti-racism of the moment it seems to operate as though there are other outcomes possible there are outcomes other than racism possible while we continue to view the world through the racialized lens which we view it there's going to be racism if we continue to if, if if we continue to understand race in the same way that we do and we uh understand it as something that has kind of like a biological truth status yeah. rather than something that is an ideology that was invented with a very specific and particular purpose in mind before we leave right in the three minutes who should buy your book and why um so I, what white people can do next is a provocation. Within kind of three pages, I talk about the limitations of addressing a generic group of white mm-hmm. people. So I kind of set up whiteness to disassemble it. Because I, I asked people online, Emma, and the amount of DMs I got where people were going, how does she feel about writing a title that's deliberately provocative? <laughs> You know, it, the title pissed white people off. Yeah, I know. I've, I've got like... But I think that's good because no one's going to fucking walk past your book. I've got loads of... Um, I'm battling like loads of um, uh, emails. You know, people who've actually gone out of their way to find my email address. Like, to just be like, this is like absolute disgrace. How dare you call me a white person? Yeah. And You're being racist, Emma. Pa- yeah, like I'm being patronizing and I'm being racist. And what else am I being? Oh, I can't even remember. Um, but the thing is, like, I do have a massive reservation in, like, you know, instructing white people and mm-hmm. um, in the way that the current mo- movement, moment, movement does. Um, so I'm kind of setting it up to challenge it, you know? Exactly. But then I am yeah. also interested that white people are actually so offended by it because i'm just like it's also like i it has limitations which i address but you're deeply offended by it come on like you know if being called a black person was the worst thing i'd ever the worst thing i'd ever been called like people are acting like being called a white person is like offensive somehow being called a black person isn't offensive and when you're called a black person when you are a black person especially growing up in Ireland when I was, you were called a lot of things other than black. Um, so it's just interesting when people, you know, talk about sensitivity and um, snowflakes and um, being easily triggered. And then like the the phrase white people <laughs> seems to send people into like overload. Um, but yeah, I would say it's a book for everyone. It's a book for um 
people that feel frustrated by the current conversation and can see that it has inaccuracies, contradictions and hypocrisies in it, you know. Um, so, and also, also people that really want things to be different. Um, my, my final proposal is quite an unexpected one, I think. I start to kind of talk about consciousness mm -hmm. and um, other ways. I, I talk about Is that the post-activism uh, chapter? The post-activism yeah. chapter, yeah. And I start, I, I talk about um, how kind of, like there's this um, ecological, like it's just, it's, Scots Gaelic. I really wanted it to be Irish, but I spoke to like um, I spoke to like a, like quite a few Irish linguists, and they were like, "No, it just yeah. it just doesn't mean this like in Irish." But in, in Scots Gaelic, it, a, 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 a word called "ducos," I think it is. I might be pronouncing mm -hmm. it wrong, and it's like this ecological principle that um, that looks at the human and the non-human and the relationship between people between people and the land. And one of the, so the proposal that I make at the end is I reject the notion that people of different races should, could be allies. Um, yeah. But in linking, in creating common, in, re in, in, in creating or linking common struggle, you know, I talk a lot about environmental justice at the end and how we all um how we have to like we're we're faced with the destruction of our biosphere you know and that's actually mm -hmm. kind of pressing yes. and um our relationship to the natural world has been um dis we've been disconnected from that through like from the same historical point from the same origins that created whiteness that created capitalism they've also completely like disrupted our our relationship with the environment so i talk about yes. ecology and you know our in as opposed to identity it gets like quite philosophical i probably i can't really get into it now but as opposed to these kind of rigid identities um that are based on fictitious kind of categories how we as 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 as, as humans we have this entanglement with the natural world and the world around us and how that's kind of been bulldo bulldozed over by modernity and how you can see in something like that ecological principle that kind of predates um, colonialism this relationship that people have between themselves and their environment and their land and how we can kind of like tap back into some of those forms of consciousness and i propose that perhaps plants are while people can't be our allies maybe it's plants that are that are our allies and then kind of make that's a, a proposal way of looking from at there. so yeah i think that <laughs> chapter is a bit unexpected sorry <laughs> that was such a meandering answer <laughs> no you're grand um just to finish up what, what, what for me who i think would really benefit from this book the exact people who are pissed off by the title the type <laughs> of people who there's there's certain people who they hate what they call wokeness and these are the people that this book would actually speak to because the book it's it's anti-performativism it's anti what the phrase wokeness has become and it's common sense historical and and really it's, it's just really concise as well i know you said earlier it's a small book it is a small book but that's i like that about it you could read this in a day and come away with so much 
and there's so many the people you quote in it there's so many other books you can then read from reading your book yeah well yeah thank you and actually i did have one um i did have like one friend who read it and he was just like oh how do you feel about the possibility that um bad faith actors yeah. who are you know anti-woke um might kind of you know try and uh like might be interested in what you're saying because you do challenge a lot of the kind of um what are seen as the shibboleths of the current um mm-hmm. kind of discourse or you know so, so a lot of those buzzwords like um well i i do i don't even want to say them but a lot of the buzzwords and the um kind of terms that I think had some utility at some point, but have now just kind of become untethered from meaning. So yeah, I think people that have like frustration with the kind of like strict ideological um, kind of demands and the, and the, 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 the point scoring and the posturing and the performativity and the hypocrisies that exist mm-hmm. in the in the current discourse around anti-racism, yeah, I think they'll find it appealing. But I, I, I realize the name, you know, might be off-putting to them, but the name is a subversion. Yeah, and 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 the other thing, people with the bad faith, I don't think they can take something from this book because it, at all points you're anti-colonial, you're anti-capitalist, and these bad faith people, the people who decry wokeness in that way. They're always doing it to service capitalism. Yes. They're always right-wing capitalists who are... That's their agenda. And that's why they speak uh, against things like wokeness. They're going to read your book and they'll go, no, I'm not touching this. This is anti-capitalist, anti-colonial. There's nothing here for me. (laughs) Or there is if they want to change their mind. But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I I, I totally get you. I I guess a lot of... Oftentimes they um they have they have kind of straw man arguments isn't it like they're yeah. saying that like they have these issues with the movement but they're i guess they're or with the discourse but they're just using that as an excuse because their real agenda is as you said kind of right um kind of right wing um capitalist support um, the current system yes yeah, the they want the status that's quo. what they want to yeah. do but there's um, so, there's so many things that it's easy to kind of point out as inconsistent and kind of hypocritical in some of the current discourse that you see online yeah. that I guess they just like target that. Can, can I get you on one last point, Emma? Yeah, sure. your book just on, so uh, in the chapter, stop reducing black people to one dimension. Uh, you said, don't believe in some imagined inherent goodness of all black people as a response to your own self. Indulgent guilt at racism. I'm not going to say believe black women or anything trite like that because funnily enough, not all black women think the same way or indeed agree with each other. So if your mantra is believe black women, you're going to get some mixed messages and come away pretty confused. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but um, like one of the things that I... I'm just going to respond to that with, with, with another quick quote. Um, that, I can't believe I'm writing this because it feels so painfully obvious, yet the allyship framework can be so infantilizing and patronizing that it is sadly necessary. But here's the thing. Like you, black people are people with the full range of complexity, contradiction and emotion that comes with humanity. Until white people are prepared to see us as innocent 
or indeed as less than saintly, depending on what variety of white perspective we are dealing with, racism is present. While there is a strong narrative of black inherent dishonesty amongst racists, at times I've seen almost an inverse of that in some anti-racist allies. Um, so yeah. And that right there, that's the the performative allyship or the it's it's the troker boxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's that it's it's the part of allyship where you say this isn't about equality. This is just another form of structural racism, just with a smile on its face. Yeah, ex- exactly. And it's kind of you know like paternalistic, and it's kind of mm-hmm. like yeah, treating people like they're 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 kind of like one one dimensional or just like inherently good because they are part of a group that has experienced historical oppression. Like nobody would imagine that like, like obviously with white people, we know that there are many, many different agendas at play. You know, Mm -hmm. some white people are motivated by personal gain and interest. Other white people are far more about, you know, creating uh, equal and just societies. It's the mm-hmm. exact same with black people, you know, of course. like obviously. human beings. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's fantastic, Emma. We went. Uh, sorry for going over there by ten minutes. Um, listen, uh, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your time and try and relax for the evening if you can. So thank you to Emma Dabbery for that chat. Check out the book "What White People Can Do Next." From allyship to coalition. I'll see you next week. I hope you enjoy the lovely spring. Enjoy that spring weather. Go out and get your government sanctioned five kilometre run. And enjoy the lovely, the longer evenings and smell the fucking air. Smell that beautiful promise of life amongst the leaves, the young leaf buds. I've got some, I've got a few little hot takes in the pot. I'm researching some hot, hot takes at the moment, some really interesting stuff. So hopefully next week I'll have a fully formed hot take to give you for an episode. Mind yourself. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.